and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing very well. Um, I mean, as far as the listener needs to know, I'm doing very well. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, but uh, I don't want to, I don't want to dilly dally here. I want to tell you uh, about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Tyler today, continuing my deep dive into some of the best reviewed metal albums of 2020. Uh, I listened. I to- always forget you're going to say that. And then you do. <laughs> and but, I start laughing. Uh, but this one is not uh, no laughing matter. Uh, the band deeds of flesh released their album nucleus, which is their first album since their lead singer passed away a couple of mm. years ago. And uh, they brought a bunch of uh, uh, other lead singers of, of other notable uh, death metal bands to, to fill, to fill his shoes. Uh, it's a really good album uh, and a really good tribute to the late Eric Lindman. Uh, and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know what? I'm going to say this at the beginning of the episode and not the end. Okay. Because I always, we always forget because we're not good at this. Um, So uh, yeah, I just got an email from uh, the designer for uh, our book, uh, the 101 best movies of the 2010s. Uh, And uh, it sounds like it will be uh, available. Uh, It will be ready uh, within about a week and a half. So we will be sure to let everybody know when it is available. So about a week from when you're hearing this, because this episode is going up in half a week so yes uh so yeah some quick math there i know let's i'm i'm impressed see that's you know back when we did theater you were on the tech side so i feel like you're better at that sort of thing um but uh i don't know why i hearkened back to 20 years ago um but uh, yeah, but you can get your, you can pre-order the book right now. Just go to battleshippretension.com and you will see a graphic on the side that says the 101 best movies of the 2010s. Uh, it is fourteen ninety nine plus shipping. Uh, at the moment, we're only shipping within the United States, but uh, hopefully that will change uh, soon. But uh, yeah, this is a, it's a great way to support the, the show and the website. And also, frankly, I think people will really enjoy the book as well. So, yeah, no, uh, so be sure to check that out uh, and you can get in your pre-orders now. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. Let's start by introducing our guest. Absolutely. Yes, this is very exciting for me. David, as you know, I am an Orson Welles fan. One could even say fanboy. Uh, I only have one tattoo on my body, and it's Rosebud here on my arm. And so uh, I should, I didn't mention that to our guest beforehand. Uh, but uh, so a few years ago, I, I read a book called Orson Welles' Last Movie, uh, uh, written by Josh Carp. And recently, uh, he and I connected on Twitter, and I was very excited, what with the recent release release of Mank to uh, invite him on and talk 
all things Orson Welles, uh, in a way, not necessarily doing a profile. Uh, but yeah, so he's here, the the author of Orson Welles' last movie and A Feudal and Stupid Gesture and all kinds of things. It's Josh Carp. Josh, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you guys for uh, for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. This is very exciting for me. Um, I will lead off by saying, before we get to know you a little bit, I will lead off by saying, I've read a lot of books about Orson Welles over the years, and I do think uh, Simon Callow, his his three biographies are astonishing. Um, but I also... I also really love your book. Uh, it's not a biography. It is a portrait of a very specific, the making of this movie, The Other Side of the Wind. And it's 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 an easy read without being simplistic. Uh, and it really, you know, you get a sense of the, the fun and insanity that went into the making of this movie. Uh, I really love the book. I, I picked it up uh, off my shelf today and uh, kind of just thumbed through it. And I was like, yeah, that's right. This is a, I, I, I really recommend the book, not merely because you're on the show, but because I think it's just a really good book. Not, not every book about Wells or really any showbiz person really captures the essence of who they are and what they do. And I think your book really does. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Yeah, no, I, I uh, you know, si like Simon Callow's books and Joe McBride's books mm -hmm. uh, and other people. I mean, the one thing I'm not is like a well scholar. Mm -hmm. and I knew that coming into it. You know, it was like I had a great story with great characters that I yeah. was lucky to get. And I was I, the one thing I did not want to do was like compete with them <laughs> in that way, because there's no way, you know, Simon, you know, is committed decades to, to doing those books and yeah. Joe, you know, knew Wells and spent his life, you know, interviewing him and knowing him and working with him. So I, I very quickly assessed what, you know, it's the story and how, how he is in that moment in time yeah, and how that reflects back on his life. But I'm not, you know, I can't sit here and talk about chimes at midnight, you know, so, <laughs> and then break that down, you know, which, which all those guys can do, which I can't. Well, and I, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get to sort of how you arrived there in a moment, but first, David, I know there's a question you're, you're dying to ask. Yes. And I always ask a first time guest, uh, because I, I think where a person is from, where they grew up, uh, informs who they are. So Josh, where are you from? I am from Glencoe, Illinois, which, um, is kind of the general area where John Hughes movies are set. Okay. And um, where risky business was actually set. That's that is our claim, claim to fame, I guess. And uh, and I was a teenager when the John Hughes movies were being made. So that is, if if you want to envision where I grew up, kind of like you know Molly Ringwald Street and Sixteen Candles is 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 where I'm from. Did those okay. capture your experience as a as a high schooler at the time? Not exactly. I, okay. <laughs> though people looked a lot like that, and some sure. people acted <laughs> like that, but my and uh, whatever kind of you know crap I was involved in that was similar to that what they were doing was far less pleasant than whatever they were doing. Sure. And, you know, less innocent, and, you know. And, but though I wasn't, you know, stealing girls' underwear and shit like that. So you know, <laughs> where do you like, like you, you watch those John Hughes movies now, and you just go like, oh. Dude, like, yeah. How, how a lot of those, a lot of those '80s romps. You some come to realize, like, ah, oh, this isn't quite as rompish as I uh, as I remember. I want to know because uh, Tyler and I lived and went to uh, college in in Chicago, so we're, we we yeah. know Chicago. Was your uh, growing up in the 
John Hughes part of the world. Was your relationship to Chicago like that of the characters in Adventures in Babysitting? Like, was it this like alluring but also terrifying place? Uh, you know, it it, it it was certainly alluring. Um, you know, I, I having been a, a preteen in the seventies, you, you guys are, are you know I think about like fifteen or sixteen or. 20 years younger than me, <laughs> you, there was the, the way people had dealt with their kids in those days was very different. Sure. And so there was a lot of like, you know, people didn't necessarily want to know where you were. So we would, by the time I was a teenager, you know, like it, we would go to the city and do stuff that if my kids were doing it, I would, I would be absolutely terrified but, but to us it was perfectly normal so the city was very alluring and there were parts of it that were scary but you know it was mostly just like it was cool and you kind of had the free run of it is it once you had a car or once you knew how to get on the l so uh you know so so i, I was in the city you know enough and my parents took us into the city a lot when i was a kid so i mean i was not like oh my you know oh my god i'm in the city and there are you know people unlike me and, and all that so it, it wasn't terrifying that's that. That's good to know. I was because uh, I'm like you said, uh, younger than than you and I had in my suburban St. Louis upbringing. I had, you know, free reign. Just like you, you leave the house uh, in the morning, come back before uh, the streetlights come on, and that that sort of thing. But being uh, living in the St. Louis area and being a little kid in the early nineties when gang violence was like off the charts in, in, in St. Louis, like going to a perfectly safe field trip uh, uh, for, to like an art museum or a theater or whatever in the city, all of us like sheltered white suburban kids would be just like completely psyching each other out uh, about like, <laughs> make sure you don't wear this color on the field trip. Like it's, in, in, in retrospect, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I, I'm, you know, when I, we just wound up finding ourselves in places that you look back now and you're, you're always like, wow, I was 16 and I was there at two o'clock in the morning. And boy, that, that was not great, you know, <laughs> like, but, but we were, you know, just, just naive and just unprotected enough that we, we kind of, we all, we all live, we, we all made it out. So there you go. That's all you can ask. And you're, yeah. uh, whatever doesn't kill you. Right. Exactly. You made it out changed and scarred men. And you're, <laughs> you're always going to carry that with you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, see, um, so Tyler, we took some time out to ask the guest where he was from. We got a sure. good conversation out of it. This is why I always do that. I know. I don't, I don't judge you right. for that. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think because I lived so many places, I, I do, because of your question, I tend to wonder like what impact did each place have uh, on me? And uh, I got nothing. So, uh, okay. <laughs> That's why you don't have the thing that I have where I point out whenever any famous person is from the St. Louis area, I'm always like, Oh, that person's from St. Louis. Um, with some exceptions when uh, I don't like the person, but you don't have that because you don't have that any connection to a childhood place. The best I can do is, is say that that movie, the best of times with Robin Williams and Kurt Russell was filmed in Taft, California, and it takes place in, in Taft, California. And it's all about how terrible Taft, California is. Taft, so, California uh, plays itself. It sure uh, does. All right, this is enough of a diversion. It plays itself out. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I was curious. Um, 
you know, you've you've written uh, a number of books. Uh, and David, before you you joined us, we were talking and uh, Josh actually has taught some classes at Columbia. Um, he oh. is Chicago based now and um, uh, about journalism. How did you you know, a couple of a couple of big questions. One is how did you get into journalism and how did how do you decide what topics to write an entire book about? As you mentioned, you're not uh, you don't consider yourself a Wells scholar, for example. Uh, so how do you arrive at I'm going to write a very in-depth book about one specific project of his? You know, um, it's funny, I, I have had the experience, you know, on three occasions where the book I wrote, it, it kind of, I, the book kind of finds you. It, it, that sounds really like bullshitty and pretentious, but, <laughs> you know, you just, you come across something and you go like, huh, you know, it's not like you're out there. I was not out there looking for Orson Welles. Okay. Um, I, my, my, my basic experience has been that while I'm finishing a book or while I'm halfway through a book, you hit this point where you go, oh my God, this is never gonna happen. This book mm -hmm. is not gonna work. I'm gonna have to give money back to a publisher. My children are gonna starve and I, I don't know what to do, but this book isn't working. And I have used that time when I'm having an anxiety attack and a nervous breakdown, usually to read something distracting. and. On two occasions, I found my next book, and really on three occasions, because I found a, a TV pilot that I wrote, too, like in, in the middle of one of those freakouts, where I just, you know, I think with, um, I was finishing up my second book, with the, and I read something, I like picked up a book about John Huston, mm. and, and it made reference to the other side of the wind, and there was like one crazy story. I think it might have been like Houston driving on the wrong side of the highway with Wells and all these other people in the car. And I was like, well, that's a great story. And I was like, I wonder what this is about. And then I, you know, kind of, you know, looked it up and I was like, Oh, they talk about another book and every book and every article had like two or three completely insane stories. And I was like, how has nobody written a book about this? And I, and, and I just got fascinated and, you know, I, I wish I could say that I, ahead of time had some great thought like, oh, this is a book. But but what happens is I think all of a sudden you start to see characters mm -hmm. you want to write about and you see a story that has, you know, like I like, I think the stories I write are, are usually, I, I gravitate towards somebody who's trying to do something really big. Yeah. Really perfect. Who almost gets there and you know, doesn't quite get there. And that to me is, you know, it's, it's like the loser's locker room being more interesting than the winner's locker room. So, so I, it had all the elements and it also, you know, it was, it had this, that weird thing that, that, you know, as we discussed the movie, we'll get into, but like, you know, here's this guy, it, it became very apparent very quickly to me that Wells is making a movie about a guy exactly like himself yeah. making a movie exactly like he's making with all the people from his actual life playing out their relationships with him on screen. And he's telling everybody it's not autobiographical. And he's also kind of both shooting for, you know, 
the moon and running it like self-destructively into the ground simultaneously. And I was just like, this is so fascinating. This is the greatest film artist, you know, in, in my opinion, who, who ever lived and or one of the three or four. Right. And here he is making this crazy, you know, movie on the run that's got so much stuff going on in it. And, and, and it be, just became irresistible. I, I spent about three or four weeks just looking up stuff about it. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't even need to write this. I can just get the stories and put them in order and <laughs> try to make sense of them. And I think I'm in good shape. Yeah, it's the the project itself is uh, for Wells fans. It was the kind of thing that you always, as is the case with so many of of his movies, even the ones that did get made, there's always this fabled lost cut. And in this case, like, well, this one was never finished, but it could be, and maybe it will be. And that it's been, it had been that for decades. And so, uh, but you, you would hear all these stories about it and you, you just hear like, this is so clearly autobiographical. Uh, even if it's just autobiographical in that the movie is about him making this movie, um, the film is somehow both the most and least creative he's ever been, Um, you know? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, in, in his mind, and I think in the minds of a lot of the people who worked on the film, and to some extent, certainly the truth, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, to him, this was like pure creativity, mm-hmm. right? Is like, I'm, you know, I'm writing the script, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, a stack 80 feet high of, of script pages, but we're not actually using that because that's yeah. all we need to know is we need to know in our hearts, you know, and in our souls and in our performances, what goes into this, what you say is immaterial. And so it was this whole thing of like waking up every morning to create a new yeah. um, with a, an army of loyal soldiers at his behest to go do the thing he, he loved to do. And, and, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, you know, there's always that thing with Wells of, you know, Oh, did he want to finish it? You know, and and this and that. And the one thing is, you know, several people said they're like, I'll tell you, the one thing I know he liked to do is he liked to get up every day and make a movie. Mm -hmm. And there is a there, this is not the big answer to the movie, but the idea of that stopping, I think, was very hard for him to think about. So I think part of one small part of him continuing to make the movie eternally was that he was, he just loved doing it and he had people who would do it with him anytime he wanted to. Yeah. That's, that's something that Callow writes about uh, in his, in his third book. Um, and which I think I probably agree with. It's not this weird psychological, like fear of, of completion or anything like that. It's right. this idea that like, when you're done making the movie, you're not making the movie anymore. And when you're Wells, you can't really guarantee that there's another one coming down the, coming down right. the pike. Uh, and also, and- I mean, historically with like Amberson's and touch of evil, his biggest, yeah. his biggest battles had been in editing. So as long as he's in the cocoon of still being in production, he yeah. never has to fight that fight. Right. That, and, and which is, and what's funny too, is, I mean, the editing, I think in the end, I think, you know, he really, he thought that was the, you know, the ultimate moment of filmmaking, right? That's where, that's where the movie gets made. And that was his greatest skill and all that. But he was, 
<laughs> in addition to shooting it all the time, all of the phases of making the film converged upon each other because he was mm-hmm. writing it every night for years yeah. on, on set. He was shooting it every day and then he was cutting stuff at night. So he had the whole, and, and he was living most of the time in the places where he was shooting. Yeah. So there, that to me, like, I, I mean, I don't know how early I figured that out, but when that dawned on me, that all the phases of filmmaking were taking place at the same time. And he was living in the places where he was making the movies. I was like, this is so too good to be true. You know, it was just amazing. There are so many fun stories. I mean, certainly I think it almost culminates in the making of, of the other side of the wind, but there are so many stories about, about Wells just totally, I, feel, I don't want to say taking advantage of other people, but I would say, uh, let's say um, just acting on their goodwill, maybe uh, stretching it a bit. Um, like there's that, I, I forget uh, this, I might've read about this in, in your book, or it might've been that uh, documentary, uh, The Love Me When I'm Dead, where uh, he paid, he owed somebody money and he paid him by giving this person his car. And so he the gave person's somebody like somebody else's car. Oh, that's right. He but then he's the a cinematographer's car. <laughs> but then he called that person and said, Hey, I need a ride here and there. And, and so like, no, that, that, that is like the most ironic thing because yeah. it, I, I believe it was Gary Graver's car and Gary gave his entire life to order yeah. a film. Right. And then he owed, I believe it was Peter Jason who's in the movie and who, if you see, if you saw Peter, you'd recognize him. He's in everything. Yeah. He's, like he's in Deadwood. Deadwood. Yeah. 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 He's just one of those. And he's a great guy and he's a great, great storyteller. And I believe he owed Peter like $10,000 and Peter came and he's like, you know, of course. And he's like, I mean, it's been like four years. I, I, I need the money. And I, and he goes, Gary, give him your car. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary gave him the car. Yeah. You know, like willingly, like, sure. Of course. You know, he told me to give him the car. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely like he was a force of nature that could completely exhaust your patience. I say this as though I knew him, but like uh, it could completely exhaust your patience. And yet so many people throughout his entire life, uh, people who didn't really need him to succeed, but they just kept being like, there's something about this guy. He just like had a gravitational pull like a planet. No, I'm not trying to say that he got as big as a planet by the end, but uh, although I guess he did play a planet. Yeah. But uh, that's, it's one of the things that I find fascinating. I love, I do love his movies. I love his sensibilities. I love the things that clearly thematically appeal to him, but also just, he's just such an interesting person as well. Well, he, he, I mean, I think he and John Houston both had something that, I don't think exists anymore. You know, I think, you know, I mean, there are charismatic people working in Hollywood and, I, and I'm sure somebody who's working day to day in Hollywood would tell me differently, but the size of their personalities and the size of their lives and just the way they lived. I mean, I think what Wells had was if you met Orson Wells for five minutes, you would remember those five minutes for the rest of your life. Yeah. Orson Welles, not because he was a dick, but because he that was happening to him like 14 times a day. He was giving somebody those five minutes of their life. Right. Yeah. 
And he, he would forget the second, you know, they forgot you the second they left the room because they were just moving on to do what they did. But he, they, they, he was like, he was like the sun, you know, I mean, he was like, everything, you know, is orbiting around him and people, the one thing that I was always amazed by is nobody. I mean, there were one or two people, like there was a guy who was, who was a photographer on the set who was like, Oh, he was like a mean Santa Claus. He was so rude. <laughs> everybody else, you know, they'd be like, you know, Oh, and then, but that was that was the third time he fired us that week and told us all to go to hell and he never wanted to see us again. And then we went back the next Monday like nothing happened and nobody bore him any ill will. I mean, he was like the ride of everybody's life. Yeah. And I think that makes up for Andy was a genius. I mean, he he genuinely was. And I think people felt like when they worked with him, not only were they doing something important and not only were they going to be part of something good, but people who've gone on to do a lot of really impressive stuff have said to me, they're like, that was the best, just doing what he told me was the best camera work I'll ever do in my entire life. Yeah. And I remember, I think, I think it was Marlena Dietrich who said that like talking to him was like, she felt like a freshly watered flower or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So was, uh, I'll ask the, the, the two people on this podcast who know more about Orson Welles that I do. At, at what point was the reputation of his, genius established was it from the beginning did he come from radio with that already or what yeah, in middle school i think like I, okay. I don't know if it was called middle school but like junior high high school like basically it yeah it, it yeah. was immediately so yeah, it wasn't he, like because you were you were talking about marlena dietrich and that surprised because so it wasn't like other side of the wind like people who had probably seen you know had uh, citizen kane had existed since the before they were born but you're saying even from from youth he had that oh yeah he had teachers and and principals like wrapped around his finger they let him do basically anything he wanted and then you don't like you don't burst onto broadway at like 19 or 20 directing stuff without people believing in you mm. and uh and thinking that you're something special and then of course going on to revolutionize every medium he touched on his first try yeah <laughs> he you know he um my, weirdly enough, my dad went to the boarding school um, in Black, Illinois, went to the Todd school. My dad yeah. went for fifth and sixth grade. Um, but Orson went there from, you know, I think the age of maybe like 11 until, you know, he, he graduated. And uh, and my dad was not the same age as Orson, but, you know, he, he encountered him once there. Hmm. And he, the headmaster was also the same headmaster who had taken Orson under his wing and Orson real. And that guy was a super charismatic dude, Roger Hill, who ran the school. Yeah. But when Orson was there, I mean, that guy from day one was like, you run the show, but yeah. like you do, you, you decide what you want to study. You decide what you don't want to do. And this is like a 12 year old child. You know, you can make all the productions. They're all yours. Everything is you. And that was, he just, he was like that his whole life. Yeah. And it's, it's this weird thing of like, you wonder like, okay, we're, we're all of these adults just like, and they, they clearly saw something in him and maybe they like, they like uh, sort of puffed him up a little bit. I don't think it's that. I think they saw something that was already there and good, good for them gave him the, the, the space to do what he needed to do. 
And right. yes, it probably fueled a, quite an ego, if I had to guess. But thankfully, he had the ability to back it up. Well, he, he said, I think there, there was some great quote from him where he said something like, you know, it wasn't until I was in my late 40s that it occurred to me that I wasn't a genius. Yeah. <laughs> and he, that that was possible. And, and it was, I think, that upbringing was the, it made him possible and it also made him, it gave him his failings. You know, it was oh, yeah. the greatest gift, greatest curse. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, studying him as a person is, is something like, on one hand, you're going to, no matter where you are in your life, if you look at, well, where was Orson Welles at this point? Oh, I'm a failure. I'm doing terrible things. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I've wasted my life. Uh, but because no matter where, like I'm 38, what was he doing at 38? Uh, probably struggling in some ways, but by the time he was 38, he had already done some uh, astonishing things. But, uh, but at the same time, it is this idea. It's like, yeah, somebody being a genius and somebody having tremendous talent, talent does not necessarily guarantee that they will be happy. It doesn't guarantee that they'll be successful. Like there are other elements, uh, that you need to be able to engage with in yourself and with other people in order to li live in this world in a way. Cause you know, when it comes right down to it, like, Hey, brilliant filmmaker, not a great father, uh, for example, uh, we don't talk about his kids. He had them, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, he, you know, he never heard no from anybody. Yeah. His whole childhood. And that was great for him, but that made adulthood, and life in Hollywood, not quite as easy as one would hope. Um, so one thing before we get into, you know, today's topic, uh, sorry, topic proper, ugh, um, or topic, if you want to save time. Um, Wait, I want to say real quick before we, did you say the Todd school is where, where is it? It's in Woodstock, Illinois. Okay. That's what I thought you said. The town where they shot Groundhog Day. Yes. So there's some kind of movie magic in the water. In, in <laughs> like, isn't that the weirdest thing? And I wound up going there a couple of times for like various events. And I, you know, was standing on the corner where he punches Ned Ryerson, you know, and I'm yeah. like, I'm here for an Orson Welles thing. And I'm standing where Phil Murray hit Ned Ryerson. Well, that's odd. Yeah. <laughs> Friend of the show, Stephen Tobolowski. We were, we're right. uh, oh, uh, we're making connections here. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. If you want to write a book about uh, about Tobo, as people apparently call him, just uh, just let us know. We'll we'll connect you. Okay. I'm kidding. He's actually a tremendously accessible person. Um, so uh, so you know, one thing that is interesting is you know you wrote your book about the other side of the wind before it was. Uh, before it was announced that it was going to be finished and released. Um, did you know that it was going to be roughly when it was? Well, first, I mean, you know, I, I would love to say that I just had, you know, the most brilliant, you know, idea timing wise. Mm -hmm. It was about to be finished maybe like 46 times. Oh, sure. Of course. Over the year. So it, the fact that it, and what happened was, when I was getting, you know, maybe three quarters of the way into being done with the whole project, I wound up connecting with the guys who were trying to finish the movie, right? And, you know, certainly 
anybody who's trying to finish the movie, you don't go like, well, that's a slam dunk, you know, because <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody's trying to finish the movie. Um, but they were, they're great guys and they're very determined and they were great sources for me. So I was kind of like, as I was finishing, we were working in this like parallel way and they were great. I mean, like, as far as a lot of the, like, you know, the stuff that I'm sure is not the most fascinating to many people, but was really interesting and an important part of the story was kind of the afterlife of the film. And they, mm. I was able to get all the documents for the afterlife of the film and all the weird negotiations that went on, yeah, you know, after he died. And so they were great and they were really super helpful. So we were kind of working in parallel. And then weirdly enough, I mean, I, you know, I wound up, um, you know, uh, co-producing they'll love me when I'm dead. And yeah. that, that happened because, they got the green light yeah, and we were able to get the footage. Otherwise we never would have made the documentary. So it was, I lucked out. I wish I had had anything to do with that. I got, I had the best luckiest timing I'll ever have in my life. So now my question is, what do you think of the movie? Because I actually, I know people that are Wells fans that don't care for that movie because it is so different than than what he had done is different than movies are made now um so i'm curious to know what what you thought of it when you saw it you know i, I it's so hard for me and and i'm and i will i will answer your question but i will okay. give you this preamble you know it, you go first of all it you know it, it's like it's like um you know it's like indiana jones right because it's like this thing you're chasing that you know it, before footage was was really available mm-hmm. was like you know oh rumor has it that this guy yeah it, you know you know th- you know somebody told paul mazursky they had it and um you know and he might still have a phone number for the guy and you know and there oh there's a finished version you know oh there's a 40 minute version oh there's 80 hours of footage and it all exists somewhere oh it's all in gary graver's garage but gary died and nobody knows where his stuff is and so for a couple of years, I'm like chasing that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm um, Joe McBride actually, uh, who could, who I can't say enough good about. I mean, I, I don't know that I could have done the book without Joe. I mean, he was such a resource for me and he had, I came up to Berkeley to visit him and spend a couple of days talking about his experiences and looking at some of his material. And one day he's going to lunch and he's like, you know, he, he teaches at uh, San Francisco State and he's like, hey, he's like, look at this v- VHS tape. And it was 40 minutes of it. And so at first, and I watched it like three or four times. And the first time I watched it, I was like, oh my God, what is this? And this is not what the ultimate movie was, by the mm-hmm. way, but it was a lot of the stuff that went into the movie. And I watched it and it was so jarring um, because it was so different from any kind of film I had really ever seen. But then, you know, after a couple, like after maybe two times, all of a sudden I like kind of like felt this rhythm to what he was trying to do. And the story itself is a great story. And it was like this incredibly ambitious way of telling it. Um, And 
for me, I can't say, you know, like, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. I mean, I, I of course, I was fascinated by it. I mean, I think that's really more when the yeah. movie was finished. I was, it was just like, I, I was more fascinated than anything. And, and, and what was interesting to me more was, were, were the variety of reactions that I was, uh, they showed it at like the New York film festival and, and, uh, and they were showing the documentary there right before it. And uh, my brother-in-law who lives in New York and is like a super way overeducated guy. Um, he went with me and my sister-in-law and a couple other people. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, they're going to be like, what the hell is this movie? Cause it's not an easy film yeah, for anyone. And he was blown away. I mean, he talked about it for weeks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, to me, it, you know, it's, and, and I hate to be like, I hate when people are like, it's a challenging film. You know, it's not a blockbuster film. It's not, you know, um, in the Marvel universe, you know, you're not going to, you know, be like, God, I got to watch that like 40 times unless you're right. a real film geek. But to me, it was fascinating to watch. And I thought what, what really struck me more than anything were the performances by uh, John Huston yeah. and Bogdanovich, because I think those were absolutely incredible. And the fact that he got those performances out of those guys, that, to me, that made the movie and their relationship um, and the way, you know, he was able to elicit that from them, I, I thought made it a really wonderful film. And it's, it's so interesting that, I mean, obviously he was friends with both of those guys, uh, but also they are directors themselves. And so how, how fascinating that he was able to get really good performances by these guys who are, who are in a similar position to him, albeit at different points in their career and are close with him. Like you almost wonder if it's like, if on, on multiple levels, if they just sort of got it, not to suggest that nobody else did, but they just sort of got it more than anybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, he, it's interesting. He cast them both as them essentially as playing characters who are a lot like themselves. Mm-hmm. And Bogdanovich, I mean, my, my favorite, if, if you ever just need to know one thing about the movie to ex- explain the whole thing is that in se- 1970, Bogdanovich has, you know, only made one, you know, right. Corman movie and is a writer writing a book about Wells. And he is portraying a guy writing a book about Wells yeah three years later bogdanovich has made three huge hit movies and is like the biggest young director in hollywood and he is recast as who he is three years three years later and that that's the story of the entire film because it's like how else does that happen you know that you just go okay you're you're, here's who you are now now here's who you are three years later i'm gonna make you do that and it's, well, and I mean, it, lucky, luckily, Rich Little is not one of the people who got it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this for Rich Little. My interview with Rich Little <laughs> was extraordinary for the fact that, you know, you kind of forget how somebody who, who does voices, who's really good at it, who's made their entire life out of it, how good they are at doing it. Uh-huh. And he... I spent about an hour having conversations between Wells and Houston in their voices. Oh, wow. While t- I, I, why I didn't tape that, I don't know, but that <laughs> I just sat there and I, it, it was like the, cra- I was like, 
this is not what I expected would happen in my career. I never expected <laughs> listening to Rich Little do Orson Welles and John Huston, you know, having conversations based on some uh, weird movie he got cut out of. Well, that sounds like a good transition as far as someone depicting Wells. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, uh, one of the, uh, with the recent release, David, you got something to say? Uh, cause well, you, you, you're talking about the idea of rich little, you know, doing, uh, Orson Welles in and the story he's telling would have taken place in the 1970s. And what strikes me about what we're talking about here, all the way that all the different times that Orson Welles has been depicted, he's always depicted in like the forties, like the thirties incredible rock in the forties. Like yeah. you don't see a lot of like people playing seventies and eighties <laughs> Orson Welles. Unless it's Pinky in the Brain or second or SCTV, yeah. Yeah, I was I was gonna say one of my favorites. Uh, incidentally, friend of the show Maurice Lamarche. Uh, he was on many many years ago. But uh, yeah, one of my favorite depictions of Orson Welles because that's the other thing is uh, John Candy on on SCTV or or various other places. Um, he depicted Orson Welles and Welles was alive at the time. So he was depicting like a contemporary figure and it's not necessarily the best, uh, you know, he's not really trying to do the voice. He's trying to do the cadence and he does that pretty well. But the, the, the writing of the, of that care of that Wells is hilarious. Like there's that one moment, it's some kind of Billy Crystal special. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen all of these, but like uh, where he shows up and he's got his cigar and he looks very serious and he's wearing all black and he's got the beard and he's talking to the producer off camera and he's saying, he's like, he goes, you there, what are you, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm on my mark move your camera and it's like it's it's like that is the most wellsian type thing uh and it's it just captures him so fully um but yeah that's uh i know that i know that like for a long time paul freeze was sort of the guy to do wells and it's something that as I got older, I would go to uh, Disneyland and I would go on the Haunted Mansion, which has a voice to it. And it took me a minute because I was just like, is this Orson Welles? It sounds like Orson Welles. I feel like he never worked for Disney. He wouldn't have the patience for that. Um, and then I, then I discovered that I believe it's Paul Freese essentially doing a Welles type <laughs> Im impression oh, wow. for the beginning of the, of, uh, the, the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> you know it's funny i uh the first person i i got in touch with when i when i got a deal with a publisher to do the book was i always kind of like try to get the most fringe mm -hmm. people because then you kind of move inwards and then by the time you get to the people who might say no you're like well i've interviewed 85 people so you know it, you know if you don't want to do it i guess i'll just take you know the version of everybody else and it's it tends to work but the first person I contact with is this guy named Peter Beckman, who is in some of the party scenes at Bogdanovich's house. Okay. And, uh, and he was a student at CalArts, you know, who got just, you know, called to be an extra. And, uh, and Peter is, he's an actor and he does a lot of voice work. And he does an insanely good Wells. I mean, just like unbelievable. And so the first callback or email or anything I get from anybody who I want to interview is from Peter Beckman, but I don't know what it is. It's some California phone number and he's, and I, and I answer it and he's doing as well. 
So like, it's like <laughs> my first call was literally, he's, he's like, Josh, it's Peter. Beckman. You know? And I was just like, oh. <laughs> I was like, it's like, this is going to be a good project. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even if it's like, even if I don't finish the book, I'll have some fun. Right, yeah. Um, oh, for sure. For sure. So uh, what, okay. t- what would we know Peter Freeze? What's, what's his name? John Freeze? Paul, Paul, Paul Freeze. Paul Freeze. What would we know him from? I mean, he's, he's a, I, that's a good question. In terms uh, of w- w- when did he do Wells? Just like, uh, like I think in the, uh, cause he did a lot of, he, he was a, a voice guy and he okay. was a known impressionist. And that, that was just sort of in, I think the sixties and, and I think seventies, that was sort of just his, his heyday. He was a rich little type. And oh, I think okay. Wells was just one of the many people in his, uh, in his uh, repertoire. Okay. Cause voice wise, you already mentioned picking the brain. When I think of who does Wells's voice, I think of Maurice LaMarche cause he does yeah. the, the picking the brain. And then of course he's the voice in Ed Wood as well. Right. Yeah. And, and the critic of course, uh, which right. when talking about, when talking about depictions of Wells, I mean, obviously we can talk about the performances, but we also have to talk about the way he's written and the only Wells we ever see on the critic is the one who does the commercials and, yeah. and also has no patience for them. Uh, you know, uh, what, what is it? Uh, uh, yes, rosebud frozen peas full of country goodness and green penis. <laughs> and then it goes, it goes, oh, that's terrible. I'm leaving. And then, of course, and, and in that he's depicted as, as large. So it's, you know, it's like, oh, let me just take a handful of these peas for the road. Um, yeah. And, and Maurice, yeah. And when the time came to do the brain, he's like, I'm not going to make any changes. I'm just going to do it as Orson Welles. Um, so, okay. Sorry, Josh, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, you know, one of my, one of the things that was so tangential to uh, the story, but that I, I loved about Wells was, you know, when he was doing all those ads, he both, you know, kind of was like, crap, I'm selling out. But he he one of the great things about him was he couldn't help but be an artist about it. Right. So yeah. like, when he did those Palmasan ads, he he did his own makeup. He insisted on lighting himself. He insisted on doing setting up everything. And there's this great story of, you know, the Palmasan commercials were all about how long it had taken for some artwork, right? Mm. And he would sit, you know, and in the backyard somewhere at a table and he'd just bang them out, you know, 10 years for Margaret Mitchell to write, you know, Gone with the Wind, you know, 15 years for somebody to write the symphony. And he's just banging through these and finally they hand him some copy or they hold up a cue card because he liked cue cards. And he goes, it took Stradivarius. And he goes, gentlemen, I will not do this. <laughs> he just freaks out. He's done all these comparisons, but he's like, he's like, I will not compare your wine to a Stradivarius. He's like, it's odious. It's terrible. How could you? And he was he like, that was the thing that just put him over the edge. He was like, not a Stradivarius. No way. One of the most fun things ever is listening to, well, any number of outtakes, but that one where he's doing you know beef burgers and all of that and and the the people behind the in the sound booth are like giving him readings which of course is a bad idea on so many levels (laughs) one is just trust him second this is not going to turn out great for you um but one of my favorite moments he because he has this thing where like he can he can sound genuinely angry and yet still somehow genial like there's a moment where i i still remember he goes 
He's like, now, come on, fellas, you're losing your heads. And uh, it just sounds like he's like old friends with them. He's not. But like, come on, fellas, you're losing your heads. Um, <laughs> that and, of course, you know, get a jury that uh, where 12 people. Yeah. yeah and I'll, I'll go down on you, which is not a thing you expect to hear Orson Welles say with that wonderful voice. Um, so, but, it sounds, uh, so it sounds like to go back to what I was saying earlier, the only time you get a depiction of later Orson Welles is if it's supposed to be funny. Right. <laughs> Yeah, which is kind of uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, I think a lot of people because he gained so much weight and because he, you know, sold out whatever you want to call it and just did Transformers and just various uh, various commercials and stuff. I think people, you know, when you're a Wells fan, you see that as tragic. Yes, it can still be funny, but you see it as tragic. Uh, And I think one of the good things about the other side of the wind um, is that you can sort of get to a point where you don't have to think about him solely in those terms anymore. You're like, yeah, the same time he was making these, he was hating himself for making these commercials. He was also making this marvelous, astonishing film. Right. And he was funding it with the money from those. Yeah. Half the time. Um, Well, there is one very funny depiction of younger Wells and that's, there's a drunk history where Jack Black plays Orson Welles. Yeah. And uh, John Lithgow plays William Randolph Hearst. (laughs) And I, I remember uh, Roger Eber, when he saw Peter Jackson's King Kong, he saw Jack Black as like the director in that. And he's like, he'd make a pretty good Orson Welles. <laughs> and so sure enough, then he shows up and, and yeah, he does a good job. Um, but yeah, and to, to briefly talk about uh, Maurice once again. Uh, yeah, the way that that Wells is used in Ed Wood as sort of the gold. It's it's hilarious, honestly, that like this guy who who insists on doing things his own way and often comes up against uh, uh trouble from the the money people as a result like he inspires ed wood who's it's just like yeah i guess there could be terrible auteurs as well and uh the idea that this guy who when he does things his own way makes masterpieces can can inspire ed wood who when he does things his own way makes the worst movies you've ever seen like there's something very funny about that but also kind of inspiring in its own way yeah, yeah, I've always found that very touching. Yeah, I, I always love Johnny Depp then marching back in <laughs> to the That's producers right. and telling him he's going to do it his own way, wearing the pink pink women's clothing and the, yeah. Yeah, the wig and all that. Uh, and that's one where, like, on screen, he's Vincent D'Onofrio, who I know did do a voice, and and from what I heard, it wasn't bad, but it just didn't quite hit tim Burton's ears the right way. So he called in Maurice to do uh, to do voiceover, which. It's- that's interesting because that's um just a connection to that's the way the drunk history goes jack black is not doing sure. he's saying what the drunk person is saying that's the way yeah. the drunk history works so uh, those two those two performances have a lot in common apparently uh so i'm trying to i i guess we don't necessarily have to go in order here but maybe that's the best way to go um i don't remember what came out first cradle will rock or rko 281 um i think, I think okay. it was Cradle. They're both 99, okay. right? Oh, are they? Okay. Oh, All right. 99? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Cradle Rock was in 98, 2000. For some reason, I think, yeah, you know what? I think they are both 99. I don't know why I think of RKO 281 as, as 2000, but, um, but yeah, so you have yeah, two different, 99. you have two different depictions of, of Wells, both young. Uh, and that's the other thing is 
it's very rare to get an actor who was the actual age of Wells at that time. You know, you get Angus McFadden, who's a great actor. And I think he does a good job with the bluster of Wells in Cradle Will Rock. Um, But he's, I don't know how old he was, but he couldn't possibly have been like the 22, 23 year old that Wells was like, it's very rare. You you like, you just sort of need an, an older actor to bring that level of, gravitas to, well, to Wells. I feel like in both the 99 examples and Angus McFadden and Leo Schreiber, both good yeah. actors, but they were cast like sort of from the eyebrows down. <laughs> like they, they could do the Orson Wells like eyebrows and, <laughs> and, and everything else just sort of fell into, into place. Yeah. Yeah. But Leo Schreiber, who I love in, in like everything I, I think is one of the he does not he I, he's Orson Welles because they tell you he's Orson Welles, yeah you know but it, he doesn't feel like Orson Welles to me watching that film you know like I like and I like the film there but there's something about because I think he's in a lot of ways like the possibly the best actor who played him in some you know to some extent or one of the best mm-hmm. but there's something in you know and and I could be wrong but I mean like that the way he's portrayed in that film he just doesn't have like the He's more like you're like watching Leah Schreiber being Orson Welles rather than watching him being Orson Welles. If that I like the per- I like the performance uh, yeah. in that, yeah. like I I I like this this filmmaker portrayed uh, and the way he's written and the way he's played. But when I think of the the theatricality of Welles. Um, I don't know if, if Liev Schreiber is unable to capture it, which seems unlikely because he's such a great actor or he is just choosing to play it down. Um, but it does feel like, you know, Wells was a consummate showman at all times. And so we see a little bit of that, like when he's entertaining the table at Hearst's mansion or whatever, uh, castle, pardon me. And, uh, but even then, like he just doesn't quite have the the flourish that that I think Wells does. I enjoy the performance, and I love uh, Liev Schreiber in general. But I see what you mean. Like it does feel like he's not quite pushing as hard as as he could to be this sort of outlandish real guy. Yeah, and and it's and he's a hard guy to do. You know, like as we were talking about Maurice Lamarche, you know, and Pinky in the Brain, and, and Jack Black, he's hard because he's larger than life in a way that is easily caricatured mm. and i'm sure a really good actor doesn't want to be a caricature but mm. so you know you're trying to find a, a way to do it where you get him i mean and i say this is someone who is not at all an actor so, so but you know i would imagine it's very difficult because you know you're like playing this iconic larger than life unbelievably charismatic guy and you don't want to be just imitating him but you want to be capturing what that was and, and and it's a really fine line i think that's why it's been difficult for people to to really nail it yeah and then angus mcfadgen who i think i think his performance is fine i think he does pretty good with the voice too but it's very clear <laughs> that uh, uh tim robbins who made cradle of rock isn't particularly sympathetic to Orson Welles, uh, which is something that we would definitely see again recently. Um, and it just makes him just kind of a, a, just sort of a lout, like clearly brilliant and willing to do whatever he has to do. But a, a guy who, uh, yeah, maybe his actual genius is, is uh, 
overstated. Yeah. Which is kind of, which is, I, I actually like Cradle Will Rock quite a bit as a, yes. as a production. Um, but it is one of those things, you know, I get, to, I get defensive of Orson Welles. And I'm just like, hey, I read about this play and he was, uh, I mean, yes, he could be boorish, of course, but he certainly wasn't this. Like, this feels almost like he was just tagging along with what other people were doing, which is, again, is something we'll run across later. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that was, yeah, I mean, he does a perfectly good job with it. I think he's, you know, it, it's hard because the story isn't all about Wells. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's really in an ensemble kind of role in that film a little bit more than, than in some of the other films, but like he's, yeah, I mean, I, I thought Angus McFadden was good and, and I thought it was a really good movie, but it just kind of, yeah, it, they made him, he, you know, it, it's hard because guys who are that big, mm. you know, who take up that much space are, are inevitably are a dick on some level, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're going to be a dick a lot of the time to get what you need done. And you're going to be a dick because you're just a dick and you think a lot of yourself. But at heart, Orson Welles was not a dick at all, you know, nor was John Houston a dick. You know, I mean, those guys were amazing human beings who were operating in a whole different universe than other people, you know, and, and yeah. living in a way that people don't live. And it's hard. Cause you know, I mean, you know, especially when you're not, when he's not on screen all the time, you know, it's like, yeah, this guy seems like kind of a dick and that's not, that's not a fair yeah. you know, way of portraying him. So, Next up, I, I only have a couple, a uh, couple more movies to talk about. But the next one is Richard Linklater's *Me and Orson Welles*, um, which stars Christian McKay, and I think yeah, an actor that I've seen in a few things since then. But this is probably the first thing I was familiar uh, that I that I knew him from. And I think it's 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 very smart to cast someone that is lesser known because he can just be the character rather than, Oh, it's this person I know being this other person I know. Um, and I, I mean, he's great. I mean, it is from an impersonation standpoint. And I think he also does try to go a little bit deeper as far as like who Wells was. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. He looks like him. He sounds like him. And they, they do, they do still make him kind of a dick, uh, which is, which is understandable, but that's the other thing is I'm reminded. Okay. So Josh, you don't know this. Why would you, I'm a big fan of the character, the Riddler. And one of the things that I always found fascinating is that in the Batman, the animated series from the early nineties, uh, Paul Dini and the other writers, uh, they actually didn't build a lot of episodes around the Riddler because they said huh? he's too hard to write because he's smarter than all of us. So we have to write smarter than we are. And that's really hard to do. So we're just going to minimize how many episodes he's in. And similarly, I think when it's easy to write eccentric and it's easy to write asshole, it's really hard to write genius. And so while I think Christian McKay adds a lot, I think once again, it's just so easy to make Wells into this, this, this blowhard that people none that is charismatic, but I think they, they have a hard time capturing his like artistic genius essence and understandably so, but it does, it does frustrate when it's like, well, yeah, they got, you got the negative parts down. Good for you. Well done. But you know, I, th I thought he, 
he far and away got the closest to who Wells was. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you get more of the negative because he's in this weird, sure, you know, relationship with you know uh, with Zach Efron and, and all that. But like, you get a sense of you know, like of of him being a dick who people loved. At the same time, you know, the kind of somebody who could be a total dick and who you would show up the next morning and do whatever he wanted you to do, not because you were scared, even though you might have been scared, but because he was just a force of nature. And I think he captured that force of nature quality in a way that nobody else really. He put it together, I think, the most where you got, you know, more of a multifaceted look at Wells and you understood you could kind of get like, you know, you can't portray the full genius, but you get the level of energy and the level of perfection and, you know, and yet at the, the messiness and the manic, you know, like his pregnant wife is coming up, you know, he's with his mistress and three minutes later, his pregnant wife shows up and he's exactly the same. You know, he's like, like, like it's, of course, like, who, why would that make me nervous? And I thought, I thought he really, you know, uh, Christian McKay really is as close as anybody could do. I thought, you know, Vincent Dunforio, I think actually gets the mannerisms of Wells at that time. Yeah. Beautifully. He like really manages to tilt his head the right way and, 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 you know, make himself look like he's Wells. You can kind of feel that. I think, but Christian McKay really, you're just like, okay, I get that. That's somebody who people will follow into an abyss just because he's leading them. I definitely, I mean, yeah, it's a tremendously charismatic performance. Um, and I guess now that, now that you mention it, yes, I guess there are like, you see the flashes, you know, I, you're not going to be able to delve fully into like how Wells arrived at certain ideas and then just followed through with them. I think a lot of, I think part of the the brilliance of Wells is his willingness to commit, commit to any idea he had. Right. Um, and I do think you get that. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's, it's just one of those things. I, I certainly don't dislike the, I, I love the performance. I don't dislike the writing and I guess they are trying to capture why he was viewed this way as opposed to something like cradle will rock, which I think doesn't show a great deal of curiosity about him. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to Mank. Now listeners know what I think of Mank as a Wells fan, um, which is I'm frustrated by it. Uh, It's, I mean, on many levels, the movie's amazing, uh, certainly technically. And I think the performances are really good. Um, But, and, and Wells is not portrayed very much. And that is part of the point of the film um, is that he was absent during the, the writing of Citizen Kane. This is a film that very much puts uh, Herman Mankiewicz as like, the 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 real author of of Kane and yet Wells gets all the gets all the press um and he's played by Tom Burke uh mostly over the phone he he does show up to at the end and uh so we get to see that part so here i mean it's it's when talking about the portrayal of him it's less what the actor is doing although i think he is doing some good things especially with his voice um it's more just the the way the film chooses to depict 
wells as a concept. Uh, and I know that I'm frustrated by it, but then, you know, uh, I think I'm just, I'm just too wrapped up in what I actually know and what I actually feel. So I'm curious, you, you finished Mank recently, uh, today, I believe to get ready for this, which I do appreciate. That's more um, than I did. I still haven't watched it. <laughs> yeah. And it's the kind of thing that like, if you're intimately familiar with Kane, you're intimately familiar with Hearst and all that, like you're going to know all the players and you're going to be really excited to see that. Uh, but I'm not sure how many people who don't know it will be, find it that interesting. Um, but yeah, but what did you think of, of the film in general, but then also the way they, they use Wells? You, you know, I, it's funny. Cause like I, I've, you know, that like I was saying, you know, I, I'm not in, in the Wells scholar world. You know, and, and I know how bothersome that film was to people who are like real well scholars because, yeah. um, you know, the, the, and this is not my comment on the, on the movie necessarily, but just on the, on the story as it's told is, is largely kind of bullshit. Um, and it, and it, and it's a rehashing of this completely disproved, ridiculous Pauline Kale. Um, debunked many times over. Right. Right. I, I, and, and one of the amazing things when I was researching my book, cause that came up and he bases a character on her and mm. he's devastated by her writing this weird 50,000 word article about how he didn't, you know, he was not the genius behind citizen Kane cause she was trying to make some point yeah. about writers. And believe me, I'm, I'm empathetic to writers not being appreciated. I mean, what writer isn't, <laughs> but like, shut up and keep talking, but, but it's, <laughs> but, but it's, but it's it, it, so I, you know, but I was like, I'm going to watch this and forget that it's based on kind of a nonsense. Sure. And I guess, you know, what struck me was it, 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 not that it did that actually it bothered me, but in a different way, I guess the whole thing being about the absence of Wells mm -hmm. and Wells being just a user, which is kind of how it like a childish user is how yeah. he comes across. And, you know, I think you can tell that story and, and I mean, you know, Wells, I mean, and again, this is getting into the thing that pissed everybody off in the Wells world is, you know, Mankiewicz did what he did and it was a huge contribution, but well, I mean, Wells made it Citizen Kane and he yeah. made the script Citizen Kane. I mean, he took the basis of a, a brilliant idea for a story and the structure and he invented upon it and he marked up the script and he rewrote pages and he did all this stuff that gets blown off. But what he comes off, you know, like, all the stuff, you know, where he's like trying to like weasel Mankiewicz out of getting credit for it. And I was like, you know, I'm not sure this is how that went down. I mean, th that part seemed to me to be just putting it. There's no reason to tell that story with Wells being that way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You can tell Herman Mankiewicz's story, which is essentially it's not so much the story of Kane. It's the story of, of Herman Mankiewicz. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you can tell that story without it having to have, you know, like, or like the first time or the second time Wells shows up when he sees Mankiewicz in the hospital. Yeah. And they shoot him like the friggin' devil. Yeah. 
and he looks like the devil half the time. He's got the devil beard. Yeah. You know, and he's, and it's just like, I don't know. I, I, that it, it bugged me in ways I didn't think it would bug me. Cause I didn't go into it going like, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm pissed off that this is going to be, uh, you know, this whitewashing of the story, but it, it was really, it, that it bugged me for a different reason, just because it was, it didn't do any service to the story to make him like that. And they made him really kind of just like, it made, you know, maybe one and a half dimensional. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I'm not necessarily bothered by a movie taking liberties with the facts. I remember one, once upon a time in Hollywood came out, people that are Bruce Lee fans were really upset and, you know, but uh, so I don't necessarily require that, uh, that the movie, uh, be like adhere to this, but it is, I, I agree with you, which is like, because RKO 281 does show Wells like sort of wanting to take credit and maybe that's sort of the expectation as far as RKO goes. Um, so I, I'm fine with depicting that, but it just makes him just such a, like you said, you know, one and a half dimensional villain and turns Mank into this wonderful flawless martyr you know right and, and and you know and and wells was a lot of things but he wasn't petty yeah you know, he would be petty about something ridiculous <laughs> you know he, yeah. would be, he would be petty about something that nobody would would ever imagine he would be petty about but he was not he would not have been petty about that you know i mean he he may have you know had they may have had some you know, serious issues over credit, but I mean, he, he put Mankiewicz's name above his own, I believe. Yeah. Credits. And he, he shared it when he did not legally have to, when a lot of yeah. people contractually would have said, yeah, tough break, dude, you know, I'm the director. I wrote it. And in, and in interviews, he, he regularly said that his favorite part of Kane, which is Bernstein's uh, monologue about the girl on the ferry, he's, he's very quick to say, like, that was pure Mankiewicz. I didn't write a word of it. And it's my favorite part. Like he's and and with Kane, like the, the final card, which is director Orson Welles, he shares that with cinematography, Greg Tolan. Like he shared that. Right. Like he's not opposed to like when he admires what somebody's doing, he's not opposed to acknowledging that uh, while still acknowledging that like this is still my movie. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a frustrating movie on a, on a lot of levels. Um, I myself don't find Mank to be that interesting of a character. That was the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's not because uh, Gary Oldman's doing a bad job. I think it's again, beautifully, uh, beautifully shot film, very well acted. Um, I just feel like, I don't know, it's, and I feel like I, I get what it's trying to do from a political standpoint, which is talking about the way people are used and brushed aside so that the people in power get the credit. So it's like, okay, so right. you're now, you're, you're relegating Wells to that role because you need him to be that for the point you're making about the movie which is, is like, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But it does bum me out partially because, you know, the, the comparison that I make is uh, my wife and I went to Hearst Castle many years ago and uh, we took a tour and we were in Marion Davies bedroom. And of course, someone asked a, a cane question and right. the tour guide answered the question so begrudgingly. Like you could tell he was so tired of getting cane questions. And it's one of those things where you're just like, yeah, uh, like 
if there's any reason that people visit Hearst Castle or know anything about Hearst, it's because of Kane. And now that this movie has been made, they're probably to the degree that people watch it and, and know it. There will be people who, because of this movie, because it was dramatized this way by a major director and with a major star, they will remember this. It doesn't, you know, Peter Bogdanovich is not going to make a rebuttal movie uh, the way he wrote a rebuttal essay. Um, and so it, uh, it does kind of bum me out. When I, I was at my wife and I also went to Hearst uh, Castle in 2019. And same thing when someone brought up Citizen Kane. It was not in Marion Davies' bedroom, and this was in the screening room at the Hearst Castle, mm. is where someone decided to bring up uh, Citizen Kane. And the tour guide's response was, you know what? I'm in a good mood today. I guess I'll talk about Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, they're really tired of it. And it's just like, but you kind of have to know that's what was going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, part but, of the uh, yeah. but yeah, so like Mank is a, is a, and again, I think Tom Burke, the performance he's giving, if they had given him more to do as a, as a character, I feel like he would have knocked it out of the park. I really liked what he was doing. Yeah. They, they didn't give up, you know, I mean, it, it's funny. Cause I mean, I like, I, I thought he was good, you know? Mm -hmm. I, and I thought, um, yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, honestly, like I, I, Arliss Howard to me is like the best thing in the movie. He's, he's wonderful. I love fantastic. him. Fantastic. Um, and I like Tom Pelfrey as Joseph Mankiewicz just because I think Tom Pelfrey is always fun to watch for whatever reason. He's just somebody you're like, Ooh, Tom Pelfrey's in it, you know, and he's, he's interesting, but like, um, but like, yeah, they're, they're just, you know, this way in which, you know, the, again, the movie's not about Wells, right. Yeah. But they've framed it as this movie about citizen Kane as this metaphor for, you know, all this stuff. And, and it just does a disservice. It doesn't have to be accurate. I mean, you know, like you were saying once upon a time in Hollywood, like I love Inglorious Bastards too, you know, like yeah. I have no problem with them killing Hitler. I have no problem with them killing Manson in, in once upon a time in Hollywood. I think it's fantastic. You know, because if it's entertaining and it's good and even historical stuff, you have to bend the truth yeah. to tell the story. I don't know that this really told the story. Do you know what I mean? Like there, it wasn't, the story wasn't like, it was like, okay, well, he was an alcoholic and, and he got, and he thought he got screwed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, I feel like I would like to watch it again. Cause I think I'd probably have more appreciation for it now. Certainly as far as some of the performances, like I, I've, I had heard such wonderful things about Amanda Seyfried and I liked what she was doing, yeah. but I really, I was, frankly, I was so enamored by the look of it that I really wasn't paying much attention to her. Uh, and I realize in retrospect, like, Oh, she has some really good scenes and I, probably should watch it again for her. And I think Charles dance does a good job with Hearst, um, especially yeah. that last scene. It's, I think it's, it is very well written in many ways. Um, but I think it also uh, has some structural flaws and, and I don't know, frankly, this is a, a, a weird thing to say, like, you know, Mankiewicz wrote a 300 plus page draft. So many and, of those been produced. Yeah. And, and, and Wells cut that down to an actual, uh, to an actual film uh, and, and made changes as he went. And so I, you just kind of feel like, Oh, I wish somebody had done that with Mank because uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, I don't know how long it is, but it certainly feels long and it feels 
and we don't really get to the core of Mankiewicz either um, as a character. But anyway, I feel bad I that see, we're ragging on Mankiewicz. No, no, I've, seen, Mankiewicz. I've, I've now uncovered your, ulter- your uh, ulterior motive for having Josh as a guest was to have an ally to air grievances about <laughs> David Fincher's Mank. <laughs> oh, it's, I, you know what? I have. I, there are plenty of allies, uh, honestly, <laughs> in regards to that. But uh, but yeah, it's but I did have the I, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, yeah, if you're a Wells fan, you're probably not going to like Mank. Just like if you're a Bruce Lee fan, you're probably not going to like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but they're trying to do something. So, you know, that's fine. And it's not the crime that he committed, that David Fincher committed with Benjamin Button, which. <laughs> which I didn't see. I've never seen it, actually. It's like based on the greatest short story ever made and turned into like. And I, he's a great director, but I just I watched that and I was like, really? Like, <laughs> you, you, why did you do this to this like perfect short story that's so amazing like why did you turn it into just you know like forrest gump now i actually have a question uh we're pivoting and you might not be able to answer it so you wrote the book a futile and stupid gesture which is about the the founding of national lampoon yes uh now i watched the movie and uh, I thought it was interesting. I think they did some good stuff with it, but I'm always curious. It's not, it's not often that I run across someone who's had uh, a work of theirs turned into a film. And it's not often that you, that authors are happy with, with how their film is, how their work is turned into a film. I was curious to know what you thought of, of the movie. And obviously if you hated it, you, you gotta be diplomatic. You can't be what you can't be us. <laughs> well, let me, let me, first of all, I, I did. I liked the movie a lot. And, and, but, and I, but I will preface, I will add to that, that, you know, John, John Abood, Mike Colton, who wrote it, I, they were on it for a long time. I mean, they Mm -hmm. gave up, they put a lot, you know, this was going on for years. Um, So I got to know them really well and they're great guys and they're terrific writers. Um, And I, you know, I, you hear all the, you know, I, I didn't, contribute to it in any way other than, you know, them calling me and being like, you know, would Doug have a skull shaped bong or would he have, you know, a a bong, you know, shaped like a dachshund, you know, like it was, you know, I I answered a million questions like that. Um, And, but I, you know, I, I didn't contribute, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, did not contribute to the story in, in, in a story way, but I was involved with those guys throughout this process and I was on the set for like about four or five days. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. Cause like, you know, I, you hear all these writers, you know, and they're just like, Oh, you know, like, Oh, you know, I got treated like shit, you know, like nobody cared what I thought. And, you know, and everybody's an asshole and people are so rude and so mean. And, you know, maybe if I'd stayed there for three weeks, sure. People might've just been like, okay, you know, you're the friggin' writer, get out of here. Like nobody cares. <laughs> but I will say, like, literally every person I met who was involved with that movie was great. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that because they made a movie and paid me for it. <laughs> right. You know, but like, I mean, David Wayne was great. Um, will Forte was fan, was just, they couldn't have been nicer people. They couldn't have been more like, you know, what do you, you know, I mean, David Wayne did not ask me what I thought about anything because he was directing and I yeah. watched that and I was like, oh, that's a big ass job. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you do that, but like, you know, Will Forte and like uh, various other people who are involved, you know, it would be like, they'd, you know, ask me a question here and there. And they were, Donald Gleason was 
awesome. I spent, you know, a decent amount of time just hanging out with him on the set. Cause all you do is mm. hang out. Yeah. Um, Joel McHale was great, you know, and, and I'm just sounding like somebody who's like, all oh, these movie people were great, but they really were. I mean, so I, I had a great experience on the set of that film and seeing, you know, I didn't, you know, you just hear all these, you know, writers are like, oh, well, they did this and they did that. I had no objection to anything they did with it. I thought they <laughs> did a really nice job with it. Um, I, I don't know that I would have, could have made a be- written a better film. I don't think I could have. Um, and, and I don't know that if I, you know, was to go and say like, well, I do this. I, I loved it. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, it's not for everybody mm-hmm. for sure. It's a very specific story. Um, and, you know, it was funny as there were, you talk about bending history at some people who will remain nameless, who were actually kind of involved in the national lampoon story. were like, you know, I got to tell you something. Like, you know, got in touch with me to bitch about it. And they're like, <laughs> like, I, like I was in charge, first of all. Um, and uh, and they were like, you know, oh, well, this wasn't accurate and that wasn't accurate. And I'm like, you, you do remember the whole thing in the middle of the movie where they just ran a thing across the screen that was like about 85 lines of all the things they changed. Yeah. Just speak to what you're talking about, you know, and, the, you know, that kind of stuff, like, you know, everybody's, you know, everybody's going to have their opinion. Was it Citizen Kane? No, it wasn't Citizen Kane, but I, I, I liked the movie. I liked what they did with it. I love the people who are involved in it. It was the, just the most wonderful group of people you could ever imagine. It's something that I'm always interested in, um, you know, changing, not changing, but just again, adapting something from one medium to another. And you hear stories about one of the few writers who is very open about not liking an adaptation is Stephen King uh, with the, uh, the Kubrick, the shining, but he was just talking about his experience on that, that he would get like his phone would ring at at 3am. He would answer it and it'd be like, it's Stanley. Do you believe in God? And and (laughs) King would say, "Uh, yes, I do. He goes, thank you. And then just hangs up (laughs) and just like random stuff like that. And uh, so it's, it's, Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> uh, well, this has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, thank Josh. you guys. This was a blast. Um, of course, as always, thank you at home for listening. Real quick, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email us at david at com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at davypretension. Uh, you can follow Tyler on Twitter at tylerpretension. Tyler, anything going on uh, in your world that you need to, the listeners to know about? Nope. Okay. And then, uh, Josh, where can people find you if you want them to? And, and where can they find your work? Um, well, you know, I... Um... I, my, on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at Hannaford Jake, which is the name Jake Hannaford backwards because there was already a Jake Hannaford and I started going on Twitter when I was working on the book. So I thought I'd make it that that's the main character, another side of the win. Right. Uh, yeah, so, um, but yes, I, and mostly on there, my, my kids read back during one of the days around Christmas, read back every tweet and every reply that I did. Cause we were all bored one night and just made fun of me. So I don't know how much I'll be <laughs> tweeting. Now that my kids can do that. Um, but yeah, and I'm working on some stuff, a bunch of other things, nothing that is, uh, you know, out in the moment, but I have a book project and an animated TV project and a couple other oh. things that should be coming to fruition in the next couple of weeks. 
Very excited. Oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, well. wow. Uh, yeah, well, you're, you're always welcome back. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully Thank people you. got some, I can, I can talk wells all day, obviously. Uh, so sorry about that, everybody. Um, but yeah, this was, this was a lot of fun and everyone, uh, once again, do, do check out, uh, Josh's book, uh, Orson Welles last movie, which is very interesting and, you know, read that and then watch other side of the wind and then watch the documentary. Like you can have yourself a nice, uh, nice couple weeks, just inundated with the other side of the wind. But, uh, anyway, so yes, thank you again for for uh being on and uh thank you at home for listening oh i took your line no, yeah, no, i say thank you for listening and you say and we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.